0: All right. All right. We'll wait. Take your time. Okay, everybody gather in. Glad you're here. Come on. Come over here. Come over here, guys. Yeah, you guys. Over here. Okay, let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes and our mouths Dear Jesus, thank you that we can be here today. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you... will want to get out your sermon outline from your bulletin. There's lots of inserts today. I'll let you figure out most of them. The... uh, Couple items for prayer before we uh, dive in uh, to this. Pat, you're having knee surgery this week, right? Tuesday. Pray for Pat on Tuesday. Also on Tuesday, Frank Wong has the rest of his ordination exam, and it's church history, theology, and English Bible, which are the three hardest. So Tuesday morning, pray for Pat. Tuesday night, well, you can keep praying for Pat, but pray for Frank. Uh, Tuesday night um, he's a tad nervous Uh, Frank and Sarah at the baptism of close friends this morning at another one of our uh, churches but um, I told him he'd be fine it'd be good and uh, it's fine and he said well you're not taking the test (laughs) I said you're right that's a good thing So, let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're in our series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, For those that weren't here, a year or so ago, we went through the whole book of Exodus and uh, sort of skipped the commandments. We did it one sermon to summarize, and this summer we've gone back and picked them up one by one, and we're up to the seventh one. So, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 14, and God spoke all these words, saying, You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need to be reminded of what makes God great. We need the law of the Lord. We need to be reminded that your law is for our benefit. To bless us, to give us wisdom, and to lead us to our Redeemer. Thank you that the commandments point us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he offers. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. Amen. Amen. As most of you know, I teach preaching at RTSDC, and one of the things I've learned in reading uh, all of the stuff on oral communication and rhetoric and oratory and orality and preaching was that the purpose of an introduction is to convince the listeners they have something, you have something they need to hear to get them interested, to catch their attention. So here's the introduction. Sex! (laughs) Okay, the introduction's over. Now that I have your attention. Human sexuality is that topic from which no one can escape. Because it screams at you. From the streets, from the papers, from the billboards, from anything with a screen from the dorm halls and on and on and on. It's a lot of screaming. You just can't escape it. The Bible, by the way, does not say nearly as much about sexuality. Uh, Jesus doesn't say nearly as much about sexuality as he does about money, power, greed, ambition, hatred, and all that kind of stuff. Our modern world, tends to think that Christians are obsessed with sexuality. However, the Bible isn't. There's a sense in which people feel that Christians are obsessed with sexuality because the world is obsessed with sexuality. Whenever they ask Christians what their view is, out comes the Bible, and quite often people don't like what the Bible says. And most of all, they don't like our text for this morning. Exodus 20, verse 14, You shall not commit Adultery, otherwise known as the seventh commandment. Everyone knows this one. It's considered the big one. It's not, as I wrote earlier this week, that's the first commandment. But I think this one bothers so many people precisely because it lacks ambiguity. It's hard to nuance this commandment. Not a lot of gray with this one. And we all know that it's broken regularly and repeatedly. In fact, in all my years of pastoral ministry, I've counseled more than a few people who've crashed and burned on this commandment. It's unusual for me to start premarital counseling with a couple where at least one of them hasn't already broken this commandment. And I don't have any exact number or scientific survey or anything definitive or authoritative, but if you ask my opinion... I would make an educated guess that approximately 90% of the couples that come for premarital counseling have already crashed in this area. And of that 90%, my educated guess is that half of them have little to no sense that they've done anything wrong, let alone broken a commandment. And since I've done a lot of premarital counseling for a lot of your children in the past... And we'll probably do a lot more premarital counseling for your children in the future. And if you bring Dave Dorst and Frank uh, Wong into the mix of future premarital counseling, I really hope you listen carefully this morning. Because I'm sorry to say, it's not getting better. Not only is our society utterly ignorant of what the Bible calls sin, You know, 20 years ago I preached on this and I said our society is somewhat relaxed about sin. And that just sounds so quaint today. Our society no longer recognizes either the word or the concept of sin. One journal article I looked up this week um, described adultery in two, what I thought were novel ways. This article was actually written for pastors. And at first it counseled pastors on what to do when we discovered Moral discrepancies. Kind of sounds like a math error. You know, not so bad. It's just a moral discrepancy. Later on, the author writes, adultery is now looked upon many as an unfortunate disloyalty. And I guess that's true. But it's certainly diminishing what the Bible calls sin. And diminishing what the Bible calls sin has become the norm. Uh, for our world. Uh, I read about one man who writes television scripts for TV shows. And he says his goal is to get people to laugh at adultery, homosexuality, and incest. He says if you can get them to laugh at these things, it breaks down their resistance to them. And when some of the most popular shows of the last few years, such as Scandal, Mistresses, The Good Wife, Being Mary Jane, How to Get Away with Murder, Californication, and The Affair, all of which feature adultery as a major plot line of the show, not just as an additional thing that happens, but part of the plot, you realize it's not just a presentation of sexuality that's the new norm but a presentation of extramarital public sexuality. We're bombarded with sexual messages to such a great extent that what's really an overreaction uh, for many, but not all, a number of people today are declaring themselves asexual. Now, that word asexual has acquired numerous meanings in a whole variety of uh, contexts, but at its very simplest, at least according to Wikipedia and the three online dictionaries I looked up. It technically means without sexual feelings or associations. And most of the research I read about it, and I'm no expert here by any uh, means, attributes the dramatic increase in asexuality to our cultural overemphasis on sexuality. And they draw that conclusion because in less media-driven cultures, The issue of people identifying as asexual appears to be nearly non-existent. Although it does show up in minute numbers in nearly all societies. And though this may be hard to understand, those who identify as asexual have recognized something that most of us have not. And that's the immense harm that this overemphasis on sexuality has done to all the people around them. Most of the people who identify as asexual have seen virtually everyone they know physically or emotionally damaged by the cultural overemphasis on sexuality. And because they've seen that when it comes to sexuality, our culture turns us into consumers. And they don't want to be involved with consuming other people, and they fear being consumed by other people, and so they simply opt out. What they've seen that I think a lot of people haven't seen and don't see is that our culture turns individual human sexuality into a consumer product with self at the center, which opens us up to the use and abuse of other people. And they hate it, and rightfully so. I mean, look around. Men consume their wives, their mistresses, their girlfriends, and their neighbors. Women consume their husbands, their boyfriends, their friends' husbands, and the kids down the block. We devour each other. And as a society, we've taken this precious gift of God and turned it into either a weapon or a sport. Where the ends of getting my needs met, getting what I want, justifies the means of consuming other people. And what was meant to bind people together now tears them apart. And I think the whole treatment of this just breaks God's heart. See, God has already given us his house rules, his commandments, his gifts of grace. They're given for our benefit and for our protection. But it's clear from the scriptures when it comes to human sexuality, God doesn't want any of us being a consumer Jesus talked about this. He knew that moral failure doesn't just happen. It begins in our minds and with how we think about other people. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Those are pretty tough words. Jesus is not known as one who minced words or shied away from controversy. And so his typical sort of unambiguous way Jesus warns us against being a consumer and warns us against being with consumers. And consumers come both single and married. First. As singles, often consumers are deceiving. Deceiving, I think that's the first blank there. It seems that most single adults in our culture are philosophically opposed to abstinence. At the same time, most single adults in the church are undecided about abstinence. Most of them will agree with it from a biblical perspective, but simply feel that it's unworkable from a practical standpoint. And some will argue, particularly women, that this is something I have to do in order to get or keep this guy. And I have heard that more than once. Others will argue, I don't think God really cares about this anyway. But usually they're just trying to rationalize their actions and end up deceiving both themselves and others. Others end up at, Worst, rejecting the faith, or at best, simply drifting away from the church. This is because they know what they're doing is wrong. They know they can't rationalize it. They feel unable to stop it. They're unwilling to change the relationship, and so they leave. It's just easier. In fact, what's become known as the Tim Keller question, Dave knows what I'm talking about, When a college student or young adult comes to him and tells him they're reconsidering their Christian faith, he simply asks, who are you sleeping with? Because way too often, that's the root cause of this faith crisis. But turning away from God winds up being deceptive as well. God cares about us more than we will ever know. And God knows that sex is a risky business. He knows that people are never more vulnerable than when they're in the bedroom. Because all the masks come off, the thoughts, feelings, drives all become known. Yet it's also there that people experience the most fear. Fear of rejection, fear of being scorned, fear of being misunderstood. God knows that sex is a risky business. And that's why he confines it to marriage where a covenant has been made, where a lifelong commitment's been promised, where an environment has been established, where trust can grow and fear subside. And so waiting for the protection of the marriage bond means that men and women must be decided about abstinence as God's will for their life until they get married. Second, consumers aren't uh, decided about being equally yoked. In other words, being committed to only marrying another Christian. They try to rationalize the situation by saying things, but we really love each other. Uh, He'll be a Christian soon, I'm sure. We're mature enough to handle it. But most of the time, they're wrong. And again, they end up deceiving themselves and others, and they're going to pay a big price for it. Because not being committed to wait means not being committed to wait for one particular person. And God says that one particular person is someone who knows Christ and who holds to the same spiritual values that you do. No exceptions. From cover to cover, the Bible warns of the danger of being unequally yoked. So for your sake, don't ignore the clear teaching of Scripture here. But this commandment isn't just for singles. It's primarily uh, for those who are already married. Because as spouses, consumers are demanding. Consumers are demanding. When a married person breaks his or her marriage vows, they're demanding to get their needs met. And by so doing, they're admitted that they're not devoted to meeting the needs of their spouse. They're not devoted to physical oneness. The reality of most affairs, at least uh, in my counseling experience, is that this person is not seeing that other person because they think that person is more special or more beautiful or more anything than their spouse. Most of the time, they don't even want to leave their spouse. They're just trying to get their physical and emotional needs met. And it usually starts with the emotions. And there's a word for that. It's called selfishness. Second, they're not devoted to spiritual oneness. The Hebrews called this the great sin because God uses marriage as a model for his relationship with his people. Same models used in the New Testament. Ephesians 5 says the relationship between a husband and wife is like that of, uh, between Christ and the church. There's a spiritual quality to the marriage relationship. God intended it to be that way. And in 9 out of 10 cases my estimate. People who give up on their physical relationship have long since given up on their spiritual relationship. So how do we get here? How do we get to the point where spouses become so demanding of each other? I think there's three main causes. There's probably a lot more, but there's at least three. And to annoy you, I'm only going to talk about two of them and somewhat quickly. First one's unresolved conflict. Dave Dorse talked about conflict last week, so I'm going to skip that one. Second one is unfulfilled expectations, which usually means they're unfulfilled because they either haven't been communicated or they're just wrong. And that requires learning what expectations should be. The expectations for so many people in marriage go unfulfilled because they were unrealistic to begin with. Because sexuality affects us so deeply, we need to be realistic about our own fragility and baggage and damage that we bring to the subject. You know, people seem to have this idea that we listen neutrally to the Bible's teaching like clean sheets of paper waiting for God to write out his will on our lives. The reality is our sheets of paper are covered with scribbles and cross-outs and more scribbles. And we come as bundles of prejudices and experiences with our ears only half open at best. I find it very interesting that the vast majority of marriage counseling that I do is the premarital counseling they never had. Third cause of being demanding is one of undeveloped self-worth. Which is thinking of yourself as an unworthy person or an unworthy spouse. But if Christ thought you worth dying for, worth taking your sins upon Himself, worth giving you His righteousness, then in God's eyes, you're a worthy person. Not because of anything you've done or deserve, but because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. This is important. Unless we understand grace, we will surely misunderstand all of the Bible's teaching about sex and marriage. Unless we begin with grace, we'll end up with despair or self righteousness. Now, there are some of you sitting here this morning with sweating hands and churning stomachs because you know all this applies to you. None of the rest of us may know it, but you do, and God does. And if that describes you, then please listen to these next words very, very carefully. God's grace is greater than your sin. The blood of Jesus can wash you clean. He wants to forgive you. There is a pathway back to fidelity, there's a path to recovery. 1 Corinthians 6 reads, Uh, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There is no reason for you to carry that burden. That backpack of guilt and regret for the rest of your life. When Jesus met the woman caught in adultery in John 8. He didn't condemn her. He sensed her repentant spirit and said go and sin no more. And that's what he's saying to you today. So the first step. And the pathway to recovery is to repent, repent of sin. When we come to the breaking of this commandment, you have to realize something that's pretty sobering. And it's simply the truth that you cannot break this commandment without breaking a bunch of other commandments. In fact, part of the problem is the adulterer has to break at least five of the Ten Commandments to have this other relationship. Consider the commandments an adulterer breaks. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. An adulterer says there's a relationship that's more important than a relationship with God. What about the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. An adulterer breaks her vow and usually lies to cover her sin. The eighth commandment says you shall not steal. When David sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan, the prophet, basically said he had stolen another man's wife. The 10th commandment says you shall not covet. Adultery begins with a coveting heart. And finally you come back to the 7th commandment, which clearly says you shall not commit adultery. You can start to understand why adultery is considered such a serious sin. You almost have to shake your fist in God's face in order to have that other relationship. When God said you shall not commit adultery, it wasn't because he was against sex, but because he believed sex was so good, he wanted to protect it from being misused. However, let me tell you, on the basis of the gospel and in the interest of the truth, I'm compelled to say this, even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's a terrible sin to be sure, but God forbid there should be anyone who feels that he has sinned himself, that she has sinned herself out of the love of God due to adultery. Now, if you truly repent and if you realize the seriousness of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love, mercy, and grace of God, you can be forgiven and he assures you of pardon and cleansing. But do hear the words of Christ, go and sin no more. Second, you need to repair the relationship. Start today to be committed to your relationship with Christ, to be committed to your relationship with your spouse, present, or future, and to be committed to your relationship with Christian friends. It's never too late to start, and it's never too late to start over. True story. There was a man and woman who'd been married for many years. Their marriage was average, not great. Intimacy wasn't anything special, partially because this woman had a deep, dark secret. She had a sustained affair. She had repented of it and cut it off several years earlier, but she had never told her husband about it. So one day she decided she couldn't hide it anymore, and she confessed it to him in fear that he would leave. And he was devastated when she told him. And he got up quietly and left and walked out. And she thought she would never see him again. And in tears began wondering how she was going to explain to her kids what happened. He came back several hours later. Didn't say a word. He was carrying a bag. He took her back to their bedroom and immediately undressed her and took out a beautiful satin nightgown, pure white, that he had just bought and put it on her and said, I choose to see you as Jesus sees you. Pure, undefiled, cleansed, forgiven. It's a lot easier to repair a relationship than to replace it. Therefore, you need to risk forgiveness. You need to risk forgiveness. I can't stand here and say your spouse is going to have the same forgiving spirit God has. Most of us don't. But it's not impossible. I've seen more than one partner forgive their spouse. I've seen destroyed marriages completely rebuilt, including a few of yours. But it's a two-way street. Both husband and wife need to be committed to restoring that foundation of trust and respect and loyalty. And it's not going to happen without the help of the Holy Spirit, but he does help and it does happen. And it can happen to you, and it's worth the risk. Please understand, this commandment is not all harsh and condemning and judgmental. It's actually full of grace and enormously helpful. The Bible gives us a completely different view of human sexuality than our culture does. The Bible calls us us to a view, to a use, to an experience of human sexuality that's unique. There's a wisdom to it. There's a wonderful reason to it. And that to receive it into your life brings, I think, tremendous spiritual fruit and deep healing. And to be honest, I long for the day that our church, for example, would be a clear glass through which the world could read the wisdom of the Bible And the wisdom of God when it comes to human sexuality. That the world would look at us, would look at you. And see the value in not being a consumer of sexuality. But the great value in biblical wisdom of being a companion. There's lots of good reasons to say no to immorality. It's against the Bible. You'll be the one to get hurt. Your sins will find you out. It's all true. But it's all secondary. The bottom line is that only the grace of God teaches us to say no to sexual sin and yes to sexual fidelity. Grace argues you're not living as though you're loved. You're not living as a much-loved child of God, one who is loved, accepted, and forgiven. It's not because of fear that he'll abandon you that you should be faithful, but because at priceless cost, Jesus Christ has said he would never abandon you. Instead of obeying the commandment to make God indebted to us, we obey the commandment because we're already indebted to him. The difference between these two ways of approaching sexual morality couldn't be greater. Our commitment to faithful, biblical, human sexuality is our response to grace, not a means of grace. And it's a response to the grace we've already been given that enables us to make the commitment to sexual fidelity. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does likewise, The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. First of all, that's easy to read, but it is way easier said than done. And if you're going to keep your commitment to your spouse, you'll need help. Three things very quickly. Uh, first, be committed to walking closely with the Lord. That means giving the ordinary means of grace more than lip service. You need to be intentional about the spiritual disciplines of prayer and reading the Bible and worship. Second, being committed to walking closely with your spouse. Work to make your marriage strong. Have date nights. Just hang out together. Learn how to give your full attention to your spouse and really listen. Read at least one book on marriage each year. If you're not married, learn how to listen now. Start reading now. I've given you a book list at the end. Work at building close friendships now. Third, being co- be committed to walking closely with a few other Christians who will hold you accountable for living faithfully. Maybe you don't know people that you think you can trust. Many of you have lots of friends and hundreds of Facebook friends. But how many friends do you have that you can really share your heart with? You need some of those people in your life. If you don't know where to begin, in about a month we'll be starting up community groups again. There'll be small group Bible studies, uh, young adult dinners. The ladies have a number of close-knit joy groups. There's a bulletin insert about that. Get in a group. Any group. Any one of them. Be willing to spend time with other people in the church. Give them the time and space to get to know you because it takes time to get to the point where you trust people enough to share your life with them. But you have to start because you can't walk closely with people you don't know. Especially for those of you who are parents with children still living at home. If you're not committed to sexual fidelity, you're not going to be in the position to communicate Sexual fidelity. Less than one-third of Christian teenagers learn about sex from their parents, and even less learn about it from the church. Most of their knowledge comes from schools, peers, and online. So where do you want your children to learn about it? I'm going to make the argument that you need to beat all those other groups to the punch and start earlier than you think. You must begin to talk with your kids about what this commandment really means. And I have been a little blunt at times today, hopefully enough to break down some barriers and allow you to answer some questions your kids have. And I argue that if you're going to get out in front of this, you need to start doing this by the fourth grade or you're already behind. Most likely your kids have learned far more than you think. And a lot of it is wrong. Don't let the world have the way, their way with your children. Communicate with your children about the benefits of sexual fidelity both before and during marriage. Because you have nothing to lose but your kids. But you're not going to win them over. Persuade them of the truth. Convince them of the benefit of following God in this area of human sexuality by telling them all the negative consequences. And there's a lot. You have to teach them that only the grace of God teaches them to say no to sin and yes to fidelity. Grace reminds them they are much loved children of God. You're loved, accepted, and forgiven. And the commitment you make to faithful, biblical, human sexuality is your response to the grace of Jesus Christ. You see the grace of God argument? It's the only argument that can't be answered. You know, early in my ministry, I didn't rely on it nearly as much as I should have. When I preached on this, I said, as I sort of did today, sex is a gift of God, and misusing it puts you in spiritual danger. And though many seek to blur those lines today, the Bible's pretty clear about sexuality. But that's all I said. And yes, that's true, but it sounds improbable in a pretty uh, permissive age. This kind of appeal doesn't explain the why behind every biblical command. And the answer to the why question is always the gospel. So today I would rather you approach it this way, Ephesians 5, when the Apostle Paul lays down the biblical rules for marriage, he says this is really all about Christ's love for us. Paul is not presenting unloving couples with a moral example but he shows them the salvation of Jesus, who is the ultimate spouse to us in the gospel. He demonstrated sacrificial love towards us, his bride. He didn't love us because we were lovely. He loved us in order to make us lovely. In 1 Corinthians 6, as we read, Paul hints that the damage and hurt and pain of extramarital sex lies in that we become one physically with someone But we're not one socially, we're not one economically, we're not one spiritually, we're not one legally. In other words, we've gotten a sexual bond without a social bond, without an emotional bond, without a spiritual bond, without a legal bond, without becoming vulnerable to that other person by making a permanent, exclusive, total commitment. The Bible is real clear, you can't use God by seeking his intimacy without making a total commitment. And it's also clear that you shouldn't use another person by seeking their intimacy without making a commitment. Because our commitment comes from his grace. Our commitment comes from the radical giving of himself to us. Which forces us to ask the real questions. You know, common objection to the church today often sounds like this. I don't buy Christianity because its views on sex are way too narrow for me. But if a doctor prescribes bad-tasting medicine, what do you do? If you're really sick, you take it. And it's just as wrong-headed to taste-test Christianity as it is to taste-test medicine. See, the real question at the end of the day is not whether I like what Jesus says. The real questions are, is Jesus really the Son of God? Is Jesus really who he said he was? Is He the way, the truth, and the life. Has he really died for you because you're a sinner? If he is, and he has, and he did, then who cares what he asks you to do or not to do? If he really is the way, the truth, and the life, then you should do it. See, the gospel of God's grace doesn't let you talk about anything else first. It says, in effect, I'm not going to talk to you about sex or adultery or sin or suffering or anything else until you determine what you will do with Jesus Christ. Who he is determines everything else. If you think he's wrong, he's false, he's not true, it's all baloney. Why do you care what I think? And why do I care what you think? Until you respond to Jesus Christ and what what he claims, how can you make an intelligent decision about what's right about sex and wrong about adultery? Christians believe what they do about sex not because they're old-fashioned or prudish, but because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller, uh, tells a story about a woman who came to redeem her Uh, Presbyterian Church in New York where he was the minister. I know some of the women read this book in their uh, Bible studies last year. This woman had gone to church uh, growing up and she'd always heard that God accepts us only if we're sufficiently good and ethical. She had never heard the message she was now hearing. That we can be accepted by God through sheer grace through the work of Christ. Regardless of anything we do or anything we have done. And she said, that's a scary idea. It's a good scary, but it's scary. And he was intrigued, so he asked her, what's so scary about unmerited free grace? And she replied something like this, if I was saved by my good works, then there'd be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I'd be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I deserve a certain quality of life. But if that's really true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. She saw immediately that this wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had two edges to it. On the one hand, it cut out all her fear. God loves us freely despite our flaws and failures. But she also knew that if Jesus had really done this for her, that she was not her own, she was bought with a price. The few verses in 1 Corinthians 6 that come right before those other hard verses that I read, these are hard verses too. But they tell us Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sometimes we as the church can become so smug and self-righteous about sexuality. We forget that this is a place, is a gathering of forgiven sinners. We forget that Paul was talking about us, our sins, our unrighteousness. We forget that when it comes to the sins he lists here, he's reminding us loud and clear, and such were some of you. What separates us is not how good we are. What really separates us is the love of a loving God, the mercy of a merciful God, the grace of a gracious God, and the forgiveness of a forgiving God. After all, you were bought with a price. And the gratitude for that grace will lead you to obedience. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Before we pray, there's two uh, lists on the two inserts. Uh, One of them lists books, and I forgot... um, Further study for singles, the Gibson book and the Ingram book are really written for teens and college students. The other book by Jennifer Marshall and a new book, which I left off here called Not Yet Married by Marshall Siegel, is really written for 20s and 30s, uh, maybe 25 to 45. Um, there's actually very little written for singles over 45. Um, but, uh, and then you see a whole bunch of books Uh, there on marriage Um, if you haven't read any of these I would start with the Keller book and then the second small insert basically how do you deal with this when you're confronted with it particularly in someone else uh, also has some books there and this is the part of the sermon that I cut out because it was way too long so I published it as a, a giving it to you as an insert uh, just as a guide, it's not for every possible situation and context, but it gives you a starting point of how to deal with this when it comes up, because it will. So, let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes, that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we acknowledge that through the finished work of Christ on the cross, we belong to you. We belong to you as your creation, you made us, and yet we sin against you in thought, word, and deed. We sin at the culture's altar of sexual infidelity. We have not protected your good gift of grace. We have not believed your grace that it has the power to change us, cleanse us, forgive us, and accept us. But it does and it has. And now because we've been redeemed by Jesus, we belong to you again. Grant that we may live like it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.